your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We continue today in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. As I mentioned last time, these verses are, these verses are the very heart and soul of the gospel. They are the very heart of the Bible. What Paul writes in Romans 3, 21 through 26 can really even be considered the most important verses in the scriptures. And so we are slowing down and digging into these verses. As I read somewhere recently, raking is easy, but all you get is leaves. Digging is hard, but you might find gold. And in Romans 3, there is gold to be sure. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Father, what a, what a privilege it is to be a people with access to your infinite knowledge and wisdom and your will for us. Thank you for loving us with an everlasting love. We ask that you would give us understanding now and nourish us with truth. Amen. These verses are the answer to humanity's greatest dilemma. The dilemma that Paul has just laid out in his letter to the Romans. The human race has rejected God. The human race has suppressed the truth. We have exchanged God's glory to worship creation, created things, instead of worshiping the creator. God has given us over to that rebellion and to his own wrath against our ungodliness. And though one race among the human race, the Jewish people, even though they have received the law, the law only exposes our sin and our own inability to obey God, to please God. So the Jewish race gets no exemptions and they are in the same boat with everybody else because the law cannot justify anyone. The law cannot bring anyone into a right relationship with God. The law cannot give us a right standing before God. 
And the answer to this dilemma is that God himself has now revealed, he has now provided a righteousness for us. That is, he has offered a righteousness. He has made righteousness available. The most important question that any of us can ask is, how can I be made right with God? How can I stand before God in a right relationship with him? Because the Bible makes it clear that every one of us is guilty as charged. And again, this is not just a feeling of guilt, but an actual standing of guilt. We are actually guilty. We are enslaved to sin. We are justly condemned to wrath. Each of us is answerable to the creator for rejecting him. Unfortunately, this is not a question that people ask most of the time. This is not a question that our culture is concerned with. We ask questions like, am I comfortable? Am I fulfilled? Am I considered important? Maybe we ask, who has victimized me? Of what am I a victim? This is reflected in a study conducted by sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Denton, who then co-authored a book in 2005 entitled Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of America's Teenagers. After extensive research that included interviewing over 3,000 young people, they designated their most commonly held beliefs as moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. This was their summary for the most common, commonly held beliefs. And the context in which they are asking these questions are mostly religious contexts. This is a, a study on religion and um, on spirituality. So, so a youth who would say, I don't believe God exists, doesn't even, isn't even in this study. This is about those who claim some form of religion or spirituality. And they determined that this moralistic, therapeutic deism is made up of these core beliefs. They believe, first of all, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Secondly, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible, and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Now, my wife, I'm just going to give you an example of this. My wife teaches high school, and she recently was telling me a story of she had a student come in with his lunch, now, he didn't have lunch. He just went to a different lunch period and brought his lunch to her class where he's not supposed to be eating it. When she instructed him, hey, you're late to class 
and you have lunch, I don't want you to eat that. I'm not going to make you throw it away. You've paid for your lunch, but you're not to eat that. He proceeded to eat it anyway, which got him written up, which got him in a conversation, which then came back to her, and he comes back and apologizes and says, I'm sorry if you misunderstood me. I didn't mean to be disrespectful, but I respect myself more, and I was hungry. Yeah. Now, this is all the adults and older people laughing because that is absurd. Now, those of you who are younger may be going, well, yeah, that would have been my excuse. That's the mentality. That is the core belief. Even among those who are in Christian churches, in evangelical churches, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's the therapeutic part of this moralistic therapeutic deism. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. God is a divine therapist. You go and see when stuff goes bad or you feel sad. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Is that true? Is any of this true? Some of it. There is a God who exists, who created and ordered the world and does watch over human life on earth. Okay. I don't know that this, this is, what, 14 years ago? Still, still parallels today. I think it still expresses the primary mindset and belief system of a generation. That set of beliefs never asked the question, what is my status before God? Am I right with him? Because God, in this set of beliefs, is just a well-wishing therapist but not the judge of humanity whose wrath we have provoked. Now, last time we saw that God's righteousness is for us. The righteousness of God that Paul describes here is righteousness from God. This is a righteousness that God has provided. It is God's righteousness for us. And we saw that it is, first of all, revealed in the gospel. It is revealed in the gospel. The righteousness of the law is impossible to achieve. But now, Paul says in verse 21, but now there is a righteousness from God that is manifest. But now, with the gospel, God has made known a righteousness, a righteousness that does not depend on achieving the law, but a righteousness to which the law does actually bear witness, testify. The law and the prophets, Paul says, our Old Testament stands up in God's courtroom and bears witness to the gospel as being the answer. This righteousness for us is revealed in the gospel. 
Secondly, we saw that this righteousness for us is gained by faith, verse 22. It is gained by faith. This righteousness is gained through trusting in Jesus Christ. See, the righteousness of the law depends on me, depends on you. To fulfill it, to achieve it, to save us from judgment. This, this righteousness, the one that is now revealed in the gospel, is a righteousness that depends on Christ to save us from judgment. And this is what, I will remind you, the reformers declared as sola fide, by faith alone, solus Christus, in Christ alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And we saw, thirdly, that this righteousness for us is offered to all, verses 22 and 23. This righteousness, God's righteousness for us, is offered to all, for all who believe. For there is no distinction. So no one is excluded from believing in Christ and gaining God's righteousness. And, of course, in Paul's mind... The distinction are the Jewish people who have the law, who have this special relationship with God because they have been given this divine revelation and the rest of the world who does not have that law, is not under that law. But we can draw all kinds of distinctions, whether that's wealth and poverty or racial distinctions, educational distinctions, whatever they might be. No one is excluded from believing in Christ and gaining God's righteousness. At the same time, this statement that there is no distinction for all who believe tells us that anyone who would gain God's righteousness must believe in Christ alone. So a simple way of putting this is, the gospel includes all people, and the gospel excludes all other offers. It is for all who believe in Jesus Christ. There is no distinction. So today we want to continue with verse 23, where we see that God's righteousness for us is given by grace. God's righteousness for us is given by grace. Verse 23, every one of us is, need, is in need of righteousness, some righteousness other than our own, some righteousness other than the law could provide because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Really, this is a summary of everything Paul has said in these chapters about the condition of every person. We are sinful. And the status of every person. We are guilty. We are separated from God and unable to attain a right relationship with him. This explains why there is no distinction. The reason there is no distinction is because all have sinned, all have 
fall short of the glory of God. Now, to say all have sinned speaks of our sin as a completed action. That's the way it is put here. It is a completed action which shows that humanity's sin is a fixed condition. Meaning that even people who are not yet born have sinned. It is an act that is already completed by the entire human race. Regardless of where in history or future that human being finds himself or herself. All have sinned. Paul will, in chapters 4 and 5, explain more of how that is possible. And it is because we are born of Adam. In Adam, we have all sinned. But this is a completed action. It is something that is done We have all sinned and all fall short. This verb is a verb that describes an ongoing action. So we have all sinned is this completed action. This fall short is our falling short. All have sinned and all are ongoingly, continually falling short. We are continually lacking the righteousness needed to be in God's presence, to experience his glory, and to give him glory. So, we might think we're okay as we are. We might think that we are good people, or we might admit that we're bad. There is something wrong. And so we make great efforts to be good. We make great efforts to try to undo the bad or to outweigh the bad with good. We see our um, our accountability to God, like scales, in which if we can pile, we know there's bad there, but if we can pile enough good on this side, ding, 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 here we go. We've good. We've crossed the barrier. We've now got a good, enough good to cancel out the bad. I think that is more common. I think most people realize they do bad things and think bad thoughts, blow it at times. But if we do enough good, if we're generous enough, if we are kind enough, if we're humane enough, we can somehow balance that out. So we might think we're okay as we are. We're good people. We might admit we're bad, something's wrong. And we make a lot of effort to make up for it. Or we might not give a rip. We might just not care. But in every case... We are continually falling short of God's glory. It is this glory of God. You will remember from chapter 1, it is the glory of God we have exchanged. It is the glory of God that we have violated. It is knowing his presence. It is, it is living in a right relationship to him being the center of of the universe, 
and us worshiping him. It is knowing that, experiencing that, living that way that requires righteousness from us. And it determines whether you face eternal destruction or receive eternal life and are spared from eternal destruction. Let me show you another passage in the Bible that shows this. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Paul is writing to the Thessalonian believers and he is encouraging them in the face of persecution and suffering for Jesus' name. And he encourages them by saying that one day Jesus will return And his purpose will be to be glorified in his saints, his people, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. But that those who have rejected him, who have not obeyed the gospel, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. That eternal destruction is away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So who is it who are saints? Who can be in the presence of the Lord when he is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and in flaming fire and inflicting vengeance? Who is it? All who have believed. Believed what? In Jesus Christ. This is not a very humane soppy presentation of the person of Jesus Christ, is it? But you see, this is how the world will see him. They will never see him as the carpenter from Nazareth. They will see him as the judge. They will see him as warrior and king. Those who have believed in Jesus Christ. This is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Romans chapter 1, sorry, uh, chapter 3, verse 22. So, how then are we restored to God's glory? We must be made righteous, we must be justified. All have sinned. All are falling short of God's glory and are justified by his grace as a gift. As a gift. Now, keep in mind that the New Testament was originally written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew with a few parts in Aramaic. The New Testament was written in Greek. So our English Bibles are translations of those languages. And they are very reliable. They are very reliable. 
No one who can't read Greek or Hebrew should ever look at their New King James Version, NIV, ESV, and think, I don't know if this is a reliable translation. It's not the Greek or Hebrew. They are reliable, way more reliable than anybody really wants to understand. Okay. But it was written in Greek, and our English words just and righteous are really the same Greek word, and that is the word dikaiao. Now, I don't tell you that just to somehow be fancy with a Greek word, dikaiao. I tell you that because it is one of the most important words in all of the Bible. And at the same time that I don't think it's showy, I would have no problem with all of you picking up that word and being able to talk about it. That's the word dikaiao. It means to be just or righteous or righteousness. How it's translated in our English Bibles mostly depends on if it's a noun or if it's an adjective or if it's a verb. Sometimes the context will determine which way it should be translated. But it really is the same word. and has the same concept regardless of whether it's just or justify or righteous or righteousness. And we've seen this word a lot already in Romans. Think about how many times we have already seen the word righteous or righteousness. It's this word. But this is the first time that Paul uses the verb justify. Justify. To justify means to make righteous. Now, just to clarify, to justify doesn't mean to make righteous in behavior. When God says he justifies us, he doesn't mean that he eliminates the possibility of sinning as if when we are justified or made righteous, now we are reprogrammed to only do what is right or think what is right. That's not what made righteous means, that transformation actually does come later for the Christian. That transformation comes later, but it is not what justify means. The Bible's word for this reprogramming is called glorification. It is when we are transformed in Jesus' presence, whether it's because we die or Jesus himself shows up. Either way, those who have believed in him will be glorified. They will be changed. But justify doesn't mean that. To justify doesn't mean to treat someone as righteous when they really aren't. So it doesn't mean that we are reprogrammed and now we only do righteousness. It also doesn't mean that we are treated righteous when we really aren't righteous, like calling someone uncle when they aren't an actual relative. They aren't actually family by blood or family by marriage. Sometimes we do that. Good friends of the family, we call them uncle or aunt. And we use it to show affection. We use it to show respect. We use it to indicate there's an intimacy with our family. 
we are counting someone as an uncle who isn't legally, who isn't by status. That's not what it means to justify either. To justify means to declare someone just and actually confer upon that person a status of right standing. That's what Paul is saying here. We are justified. We are declared righteous. Our status is changed from guilty and condemned to righteous, justified. This is what we call forensic righteousness. Forensic righteousness. New Testament scholar Douglas Moo puts it well. To be justified means to be acquitted by God from all charges that could be brought against a person because of his or her sins. It's to be acquitted by God. All this legal talk may not feel all that warm and fuzzy, but it is the only hope you and I have to escape eternal judgment. Again, the scene is a courtroom. You and I are the accused, and we have been shown to all the universe that we are guilty. Not just that we feel guilty, but we are guilty. That is our status. And because of our guilt, we are condemned. And because of our uh, condemnation, we are sentenced by God's wrath to eternal judgment. But then God himself provides a righteousness for us to accept by faith. Then he applies it to us acquitting us of guilt and declaring us as just in his sight. Now, understand, this courtroom is not theoretical. When I talk about this courtroom, I'm not just, this isn't just an illustration. The courtroom is real. And God's seat as judge is his throne as king of the universe. And this actual judgment takes place on the last day. But those who believe in Jesus Christ now are justified now because God declares a verdict of righteous the moment you believe. And it is when we get into that courtroom that your faith now and God's declaration of you being righteous now will determine the judgment at that time. So this scene in the courtroom, again, is not just illustrating what's going on. It is what will take place. But the declaration that you were made right with God, that I am justified is made now at the moment of faith. And I get to this point, and I can't wait till we get to chapter four because Paul is gonna explain how that isn't only true of us, but it was true of everyone who believed God in the past 
most notably Abraham, and how that counted as righteousness when he believed God. Why faith? Why faith? We know now that justification is gained by faith because faith is the opposite of self-independence. Faith is relying upon God. Faith is giving glory to God. It is the opposite of self-achievement. It's the opposite of the very pride that is behind our rejection of God, our creator, and the exchange of his glory. So we know that this justification is gained by faith. But Paul now is going to unpack another part of the gospel. He's going to peel back another layer. And he explains now how God's righteousness is provided for sinners. How is it that God does this? If this is our state before him, and this righteousness is made now available, and by faith we can gain this righteousness, but what is it that has caused God to provide this righteousness? Verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift. We are justified by his grace as a gift. Oh, we are justified by God's grace. This doesn't just mean that God is gracious. It means that God acts on our behalf when we don't deserve it. God initiates this gift of righteousness of his own will, of his own kindness. God's grace is his favor freely given to us who do not deserve it. It is unmerited favor. To merit something is to either earn or deserve it. This is favor toward us, the entire human race, that we could never have achieved. God's grace is his freedom to provide righteousness to us who are guilty and condemned. In other words, a right standing with God cannot be earned. It cannot be negotiated. It cannot be demanded. It cannot be won as a prize. It is undeserved. God's grace is not a reward. Charles Spurgeon said that grace is the free favor of God, the undeserved bounty of the ever-gracious creator against whom we have offended, the generous pardon, the infinite, spontaneous, loving kindness of the God who has been provoked and angered by our sin. So grace is never a response to us. 
It is not a response to our good intentions. It is not a response to us taking that first step toward God and seeking. It is not a response to our potential. It is not a response to anything superior in our worth. Grace is the cause. The reformers taught sola fide, by faith alone. They proclaimed solus Christus in Christ alone. And now we see what they called sola gratia, by grace alone. It is only by grace. Listen, this is so important. Because if you add anything to grace, it is no longer grace. If you believe that God responds to us with grace because we seek him, because we desire to understand better, then you are claiming that there is some merit on your part to attract or earn that grace. And you are not justified. You remain in your guilt and under condemnation. If you believe that God's grace enables you to do the right works that then justify you before God, then salvation becomes your achievement and you are not justified. You remain in your guilt and under condemnation. We are justified by his grace as a gift. And it must be received as a gift. If you come to God with anything in your hands, you have no open hands to receive the free gift of righteousness that is by his grace. You have to drop everything else. This is why God's righteousness can only be gained through faith. You see this. It is a gift of grace to be received. And if we bring anything else into it, then it isn't faith. It isn't faith. We trust in God's provision for us and not in ourselves. And you see, God then is at the center. God is at the center. God receives credit. This is why the gospel is good news. This is why it is good news. God has acted. God has initiated to remove your guilt and mine. God has provided forgiveness for our sins and has provided righteousness to justify us, to declare us right, and has reversed our condemnation. 
God has spared us from judgment. All of this is by his grace as a gift. This is also why it is hard to believe the gospel. I think this is why it is so hard for the human race to accept it, to receive God's salvation. We want some credit for it. Something, just something. It's hard to admit that we are beggars. It's hard to admit that we are helpless. It's impossible on our own to recognize our own corruption and our own complete inability to achieve something, to achieve anything, in particular righteousness before God. And so every system of religion other than evangelical Christianity, understand the word evangelical, which has come under a lot of criticism in the last five years, but maybe longer, but is linked to the word gospel. The evangel is the gospel. With the exception of faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, every religious system in the human race relies upon human achievement. Even if the achievement is something like emptying yourself, It is grounded in our ability to gain something. The Christian faith alone says we come to God as beggars. We come to God as helpless. We come to God in faith and believing the promise that he will save us if we will trust him to do so. That is the gospel. That is this righteousness that is given by grace. And Lord, may you have mercy. May you show grace that we would have the humility to believe your promise. That you speak truth. That you are trustworthy and faithful. And when you say, when you tell us that every other prop, that every other system, every other righteousness that we might claim or depend on is corrupt and keeps us from your grace. Lord, help us to have that humility. We can only see if you will give us the eyes to see. And I pray that anyone who is pricked, provoked by the truth of the gospel, will turn to you and ask for eyes to see that you would grant understanding. May you be glorified in your people this morning, in us who stand before you justified. In your name we pray.